Father, uh, we thank you for the truths that we have sung this morning. And Lord, especially that last song, I pray, Lord, that you would do a mighty work in our hearts, that we would be able to sing such a song honestly, Lord, that uh, that would be the testimony of our lives, that, that we would be able to bless your name, not only when the world is as we think it should be, but also uh, when the road that we are walking is marked with suffering, Lord. Um, make us people who trust in you so much that no matter what circumstances we are facing, we know that you are good and that you are working for our good through it, Lord, no matter what. Um, give us that kind of faith, the kind of faith that clings to you uh, even when it seems like the world is falling apart, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, before we began going through the letter to the Corinthians, um, we had started working through some psalms. And now that we have finished that letter to the Corinthians, I thought we ought to go back to the psalms. So we're in Psalm 6 this morning. So turn in your Bibles to Psalm 6. And as you're turning there, I'll read it for us. The superscription of this psalm says, For the choir director with stringed instruments upon an eight-string lyre, a psalm of David. And this is what David writes. He said, O Lord God, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am pining away. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are dismayed. And my soul is greatly dismayed. But you, O Lord, how long? Return, O Lord, rescue my soul. Save me because of your loving kindness. For there is no mention of you in death. In Sheol, who will give you thanks? I am weary with my sighing. Every night I make my bed swim. I dissolve my couch with my tears. My eye has wasted away with grief. It has become old because of all my adversaries. Depart from me, all you who do iniquity. For the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord receives my prayer. All my enemies will be ashamed and greatly dismayed. They shall turn back. They will suddenly be ashamed. Here we are at the start of a brand new year, 2023. And we often have bright hopes for what a coming year will bring. And certainly that was the case in 2021, right? After we got through 2020, we said, boy, 2021 can't be worse than 2020. It's got to be better than that. And that's our hope for every year, isn't it? We hope that it will be better than the year before. But we should ask ourselves what God desires to accomplish in me this coming year. From God's perspective, what does it look like for one year to be better for me than another? He has quite different ideas about what is better than I do. God's goal for our lives is that we bring him glory by becoming conformed to the image of his beloved son, Jesus Christ. And how does God bring about that transformation in our lives? Well, he uses the normal means of grace to do that, such as Bible reading and prayer and gathering together with the saints and the church. And these are things that we should be resolved to grow in this coming year. That's what the New Year's about, right? Making resolutions. Well, we should resolve to grow in those things. 
But there is another means of grace that God uses that we don't like to acknowledge. And that means is trials, hard times. We keep hoping for a trial-free year, but we keep being disappointed, don't we? That's because there's no such thing as a trial-free year this side of heaven, for the believer, that is. Satan may see fit to reward his servants with ease in this life as he drugs them with the delusion that they're okay when in reality they're heading for an eternal hell, but God is not faithless to his children in that way. God is faithful to discipline his children. He's accomplishing good for them through the trials that he brings into their lives. And we ought to face the reality that 2023 will bring trials for us. That's just the way it is. It doesn't do any good to pretend that it won't. James chapter 1 verses 2 to 4 tells us that that should not be a dreadful prospect to us. The thought that I'm going to face trials this coming year, that should not cause me to despair. James says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Why? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What can be better than knowing that as long as I keep trusting God, 2023 will result in me being more like my Savior than I was in 2022? There's nothing better that the year can bring than that. Psalm 6 is a psalm where we see David undergoing severe trial in his life. And we see in his prayer the proper response of faith under trial. In this psalm, we find a model for us for how we can respond with faith and endurance to the trials that God will bring us this coming year. So this is preparation for us. So let's go through this psalm verse by verse. In the first three verses of this psalm, we will see faith's cry for grace. That is how faith responds under trial. It cries for grace. In verse 1, David begins this prayer by calling upon the name of the Lord. And by all the capital letters of Lord there, you know that behind that is the Hebrew name Yahweh. Yahweh is the covenant name of God by which he revealed himself in the Old Testament to the people who he was pleased to enter into a covenant with. The grace he showed his people was by entering into covenant with them. And the name Yahweh is related to the Hebrew verb hayah, which means to be. So Yahweh's name likely refers to his eternality, his unchangeableness, and his absolute self-sufficiency. As the only being who is truly and infinitely self-sufficient, he is the only one that we should call upon when we have been brought face-to-face with our own insufficiency. In the first four verses, uh, David will repeat God's name five times. When David is at the end of his rope and there's hope nowhere else, that's the name that is coming out of his mouth, Yahweh, Jehovah. Listen to his plea to Yahweh in verse 1. He says, O Yahweh, do not rebuke me in your anger. 
nor chasten me in your wrath. What is David asking in this first verse? He's not making a general plea for God to stop disciplining him at all. Instead, he's making a very specific plea to God that this rebuke, this chastening, not be out of anger or wrath against him. He's not asking for no rebuke and no chastening. He's saying, just don't let it be in your anger or in your wrath. In other words, David is begging God to deal with him as he would deal with a son rather than an enemy. David asks that this discipline be given by the hands of a father rather than a conqueror. David doesn't deny his own need for rebuke and chastening because he knows he's a sinner and he knows that he needs discipline. David can trustingly bear up under discipline at the hands of a father, but he knows that if God treats him as an enemy, he won't be able to endure it. Verse 2, David asks for grace. He says, Be gracious to me, O Yahweh, for I am pining away. Heal me, O Yahweh, for my bones are dismayed. Notice that David does not angrily say, God, I don't deserve this. What are you doing? No, he pleads with God as one who knows he deserves the treatment he is receiving. Therefore, David doesn't ask for justice. If he thought he didn't deserve what he was getting, he would say, God, be just. But instead he says, God, be gracious. Give me favor that I have not merited before you. And the reason he gives for this request is because he is frail. That is what the Hebrew word for pining away in my translation means. Be gracious to me, O Yahweh, for I am frail. I am ready to fall. God's discipline has brought David to this self-understanding. In our sin, we tend to think that we're invincible and that we don't need grace, but then when God's chastening hand rests heavy upon us, the fog of that delusion burns off pretty quick. And David has been brought to that place where he feels his frailty and his inability to rescue himself. And so he begs for grace. In the second half of this verse, David rephrases his petition. He asks God for healing. And the reason that he gives for wanting God to heal him is because he says his bones are dismayed. Or terrified. Here we understand more of what David meant when he asked for grace in the midst of his frailty. He's asking for healing because the heavy hand of God is causing his whole being to be terrified. Bones can refer to his physical bones, but they can also refer to the inner life of someone or the whole self of someone. We see this in Psalm 35. In verse 10, we see the word bones used in that way. Verse 9 of Psalm 35 says, And my soul shall rejoice in the Lord, it shall exult in his salvation. And then parallel to that thought, re-expressing that thought but in a different way, verse 10 says, All my bones will say, Lord, who is like you? Bones don't talk, so obviously he's using it in a metaphorical sense. And that seems to be how he's using it back in Psalm 6, verse 2. Heal me, for my bones are dismayed. 
David's life, his bones, is like a grape in the wine press being squeezed and crushed, and it frightens him. When he says, my bones are dismayed, he's saying, I'm scared. Verse 3, he repeats that thought again. He says, and my soul is greatly dismayed. He's not just scared, he's really scared. This dismay that he's experiencing is so severe that he can't even complete his next thought. In verse 3, he gives this incomplete sentence. He says, but you, O Yahweh, how long? Your prayers have come out like that before, haven't they? When you feel so under pressure that you can't coherently put into words what you are trying to say, and all that can come out is the name of God and how long, how long will this keep going? You feel like you passed your breaking point a long time ago, and you don't know why God continues to put you through this. That crank on that divine wine press just keeps turning, and you feel like there's no juice left to get out of me. In these first three verses, this is what true faith under trial looks like. Later on in this psalm, we're going to see that the suffering that David is experiencing is coming about through the agency of his enemies. At the end of verse 7, he says that this is because of all my adversaries. Verse 8, he says, depart from me all you who do iniquity. Verse 10, he says, all my enemies will be ashamed. They are the immediate cause of his turmoil. They are the reason why he's scared. And yet, to whom does David ultimately attribute all of his trouble? Not to his enemies, but to his God. David sees everything through the lens of God's sovereignty. David trusts that God is literally in control of everything, even over the enemies that are seeking to destroy him. David knows that there are no adverse circumstances that have come into his life that have not first passed through the hands of God. And that is why David runs to God. If God is not in control, if these enemies have overpowered God and God tried really hard to stop them, but he just couldn't stop them, then David would not run to God because God wouldn't be able to do anything about it if he did. It's because Yahweh is in control, even over his enemies, that David runs to him. That is the response of true faith under trial. Faith recognizes God's in control of this. God has brought this into my life. Faith does not get angry at God. Faith does not abandon God. Faith runs to God. And David here is submitting himself to the discipline of God. And he runs to God as, a fa as to a father. And he asks for grace and healing in the midst of the trial. As believers, when God is disciplining us for our sin, we ought to do the same. And as David found out, so will we, that though God disciplines us, he never does so out of angry wrath, but as a father, if we truly believe in him. When his chastening has had its humbling effect upon us, 
His grace is there to heal and restore us. Now, I want to be quick to say that discipline is not always due to sin. Just because something bad happens to me, I can't automatically assume I've sinned and God is chastening me for that. No, sometimes discipline is training. Sometimes God brings trials into our lives to give us opportunity to grow in patience or to deepen our dependence upon him or to be a testimony to others of what God can get me through. Whether the discipline is for correction or for training, whether it's due to my sin or God just needs to train me in something, in either case, we need to run to our Father who is meeting out the discipline. And we need to ask for his healing grace. That's what faith does. The second response of faith we see in verses 4 through 5. And that's faith's reasoning with God. When you are experiencing the Lord's discipline, it can feel like God is far away from you. And that was David's experience. And that is why he prays what he prays in verse 4. He says, return O Lord, return, rescue my soul. He asked God to come back to him and rescue him. In this context, soul carries the nuance of life because it's his life that is in mortal danger as these enemies are trying to get at him. Rescue my life, rescue my soul. In verses 1 through 3, David gave his own personal reason for why he was asking for grace. The reason that we saw there was his own personal frailty. He felt, God, I can't take this anymore. Please grant me relief. I can't take anymore. But in these verses, David gives God's reasons for why God should save him. David's not talking about his own personal reasons now. He's saying, God, this is why you should save me. Verse 4, the second half of that verse, he says, save me because of your loving kindness. David does not give God a personal resume of why he should grant relief to him. He doesn't say, God, I've done this and I've done this and I've done this. This is why you should give me relief. No, the first reason David gives for why God should save him is because of your loving kindness. David's first reason is God's own character. And you and I need to understand that there is no more powerful prayer than that kind of prayer. There is no more certain way to know that you have what you have asked for from God in prayer than to pray this way to abandon all attempts to justify yourself in the sight of God and instead to tie your request to who God is in and of himself. David here, in speaking of the loving kindness of God, he's drawing on who God revealed himself to be to his people in ages past. Turn back to Exodus 34 with me. We see it. Most profoundly here, Exodus 34, this is after God has delivered his people out of Egypt and they have committed to him in a covenant to be faithful to him. But immediately after that, Moses goes up on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments written on tablets 
while the people are down below creating a molten image of a calf and worshiping it. They have broken covenant with God straight away. And Moses is talking with God. Exodus 34, verse 5. The Lord, Yahweh, descended in the cloud and stood there with him, with Moses, as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God. Again, that's Yahweh, Yahweh God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. That is who Yahweh has revealed himself to be. And that is what David is depending on to receive from God. The word loving kindness, when David says, save me because of your loving kindness, that translates the Hebrew word chesed. And that is a very hard word to define. And here's my feeble, non-scholarly attempt. The chesed, or the loving kindness of God, refers to the faithful and committed love and mercy of God toward his people. His people who he has brought into covenant with himself as those who love him and trust him. And this chesed, this loving kindness, often manifests itself in God's deliverance of his people when they are in need. That is what David is asking for, and it's part of the very nature and character of God to show loving kindness. Exodus 34 said that Yahweh is a God who abounds in loving kindness, and he keeps loving kindness for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. And David's plea for salvation here in verse 4 is resting solely upon the fact that this is who God is. He's a God who shows loving kindness. And the reason why I say that this type of prayer is the most powerful prayer we can pray is because God will always act in accordance with who he is. God promises to save those who call in his name, and he always fulfills his promises. In verse 5, David gives a second reason why God should answer his prayer. And the reason is because it will bring God more glory to save him than not to save him. Verse 5, For there is no remembrance or no mention of you in death. In Sheol, who will give you thanks? David here is viewing his situation from the perspective of those in the land of the living. The dead do not praise God because they're in the ground, dead and buried. From our perspective, those next door, we don't hear any praises from God coming out of their lips, do we? And that's the point that David is bringing before the Lord. He's saying, if I die, I'm not going to be able to praise you. I'm not going to be able to declare your wonders before my brethren in Israel. 
I'm not going to be an instrument in your hand any longer to encourage people to worship you, the one true and living God. Charles Spurgeon, commenting on this verse, said, Churchyards or graveyards are silent places. The vaults of the sepulcher echo not with songs. Damp earth covers dumb mouths. David here understands that God does all things for his own glory. Everything God does is to exalt his own name. And so he prays that God will save him because it will result in more glory for God. And this is how you and I should pray when we are undergoing great trial. We should anchor our prayers in the character of God, and we should pray with an eye toward what will bring God the most glory. And if we pray in that way, we can be confident that God will answer us. Those are the kinds of prayers God delights to answer. We can trust that God will always act in accordance with who he is and with what will bring him the most glory. So that's faith's reasoning with God. In verses 6 to 7, we see the third response of faith. Oftentimes, we don't think that this is included with faith, but it is. And that is faith's lament. Having faith in God doesn't just mean going through a trial with a stiff upper lip. No, it includes being honest with him, pouring our our hearts to him. And that's what we see David doing in verses 6 to 7. Before I read these verses, just to help us understand the significance of what we're seeing in this psalm, I want to share this. Sometimes when we share the gospel with people, we can fall into the trap of misrepresenting what it's going to look like to follow Jesus Christ. Not too long ago, I had the opportunity to share the gospel with a woman who was going through a lot of hard things. And in conversation with her, she seemed very open to Jesus Christ. And I told her what it means that we're sinners and what Jesus did to save sinners by dying on the cross for their sins and rising from the dead. And I shared with her how we could receive this salvation. And she seemed desirous of that salvation. She seemed to want the Lord in her life. But as the conversation went on, it became quite apparent that the reason she wanted Jesus in her life was because she thought that it would mean that all of the problems in her life would go away. That's what she thought coming to Christ would result in. And it can be quite tempting to say to such a person, oh yeah, life will be sunshine and roses once you come to Jesus in order to try and manipulate them to commit to Christ. But that would be a lie. A commitment made to Christ under that false understanding would be like you intentionally planting a seed in rocky soil or thorny soil. As soon as the hot sun of persecution or the thorny trials of life come, that person's false faith will quickly wither away. Instead, we have to help people count the cost of following Christ. We must not gloss over the fact that life can actually get harder when we follow Jesus. But at the same time, we must be equally clear that Jesus is more than worth it. Coming to Jesus is not just coming to suffer. 
It is coming to follow the one who is worth suffering for and the one who will carry me through any suffering that I will face and who will give me peace and joy in the midst of it because he is with me. And it means that on the other side of that suffering, I will come face to face with a God who will wipe every tear from my eyes. But it will be hard in the here and now on this side of glory. And we can't gloss over that. And we need to also keep in mind that every ounce of suffering that I will endure for the sake of Christ, God is using that to make me holy like he is holy. And David is experiencing these hard times in his life. God disciplines his children in this life in order to conform us to the image of our Savior. And there are times when that discipline can be excruciating. We see that here. Verse 6, David says to the Lord, I am weary with my sighing. Every night I make my bed swim. I dissolve my couch with my tears. My eye has wasted away with grief. It has become old because of all my adversaries. This is David's lament. This is David's faith, pouring out his heart to God, sharing with God how hard this has been for him. And that's what we should do when we're going through trial. We should be honest with God. Hey, Lord, this really hurts. David tells God that his waking moments are characterized by sighing and groaning as he is weary from the relentless pressure of God's discipline. And though he's so weary, his nights are not filled with peaceful sleep, but instead, despite his weariness, his nights are filled with a torrent of tears that flood his bedding. And David's obviously speaking in hyperbole here. He's not literally dissolving his bed with his tears, but it's the only way he can fully communicate the depths of his sorrow. I'm crying a lot just doesn't quite say it. Then in verse 7, he says that the overuse of his eyes from sleepless nights spent crying is causing them to feel as though they're wasting away. And the impending doom that is threatening him is coming about by his many adversaries. That's what the cause of his grief is. That is what God's discipline has brought into his life. Have you ever had a night like that? Or nights like that. Maybe not to where your bed starts to float down the stairs, but nights when you feel like you can't get any lower than you are at that moment, and when you don't know how you can possibly face the next day. God's chastening hand has become so heavy upon you that it's hard for you to breathe, and you don't know if you'll ever be able to laugh again. Those are the times when our prayers turn from words to groans. And it's during those times that we have to remember that our God sees what we're going through. And in prayer, when we lament to him, that helps us remember he hears me. He sees what I'm going through. And we need to remember that we have an advocate with the Father, someone who has been where we are. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 5.
Hebrews 5, chapter 7, speaking of Jesus Christ, it says, In the days of his flesh, that is his incarnation, uh, when he walked on this earth before ascending into heaven, in the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. We have someone who's been there before, and this someone is our great high priest. He knows. Better than we know, he knows what we're going through. And as the Father listened to his Son, Jesus Christ, so he listens to us if we are in Christ. God is not unaffected by his children's weeping. He is not a cold, aloof, and heartless Father who is unmoved by the cries of those calling out to him. No, he will answer us when it is for our best and for his most glory. He will answer us in his perfect timing. I want you to turn with me to Luke chapter 11, where Jesus gives us some parables on prayer. Because that's what Psalm 6 is. It's a prayer. And we see David living out much of the lessons that Jesus is teaching us about prayer in Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 5. In that verse, Jesus says, well, then he, Jesus, said to them, his disciples, he's just finished giving them a model for prayer in verses 2 to 4. Continuing this teaching about prayer, he said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me from a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside he answers and says, Do not bother me. The door has already been shut and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. It's a good friend. Verse 8, I tell you, even though he will not get up and get, give him anything because he's his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, ask. And the sense here is keep on asking. And it will be given you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Now suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he is asked for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And then turn over to chapter 18, where Jesus gives us another illustration of persistent prayer. Chapter 18, verse 1. Now he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart. That's what David is doing saying, In a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. There was a widow in that city, 
And she kept coming to him, saying, Give me legal protection from my opponent. For a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, Even though I do not fear God, nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now, will not God bring about justice for his elect, who cry to him day and night, and will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? The point of those parables is that if even a lousy friend and an evil father and an unrighteous judge can be moved by the diligent entreaties of those calling on them, how much more will God, who is the best of friends and the most loving of fathers and the most righteous of judges, be moved by the cries of his people? Was God moved by the cries of David? Yes, he was. And we see this in verses 8 through 10. And because David knew that God heard him, his faith was able to respond with confidence. Faith responds with confidence in the midst of trial. We see that in verses 8 through 10. Depart from me, all you who do iniquity. For the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord receives my prayer. All my enemies will be ashamed and greatly dismayed. They shall turn back. They will suddenly be ashamed. In these verses, we see that David has been heard by his God. David describes his, prayer, his prayers to Yahweh in three ways in verses 8 and 9. The voice of my weeping, my supplication, which means pleading, and my prayer. And he describes the Lord as hearing and receiving those entreaties. So whether our prayers rise up to God in complete sentences or in broken sobs, he hears us. And David was assured that his God had heard him and was in the process of answering him. And because, God, or because David knew that God heard him, David finds the strength to boldly tell off his enemies. He says, verse 8, Depart from me, all you who do iniquity. He's been dismayed by his enemies, but now he's found confidence in God through prayer. He tells them off. As unwitting agents of God's discipline in David's life, they had caused him dismay. That's what he said at the end of verse 2 and the beginning of verse 3. I'm greatly dismayed. But now they are going to be the ones to experience great dismay. Verse 10, all my enemies will be ashamed and greatly dismayed. Their plans to destroy David would be overturned and they would be completely put to shame. So first, God uses our enemies to discipline us and then he punishes our enemies for their evil motives in hurting us. God's motives were good to discipline us, but he punishes the very ones he used to discipline us because their motives are evil. That's what a sovereign God does. In verse 8, David commands these evildoers to depart from him. And David will have a very famous descendant 
take those very words upon his own lips. Matthew chapter 7, verses 22 to 23. Or 21 to 23. Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, this is Jesus talking, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. What David prayed, or what David declared to his enemies, so Jesus will declare to his enemies. Jesus is the greater David. Jesus is the one whom God promised to David would sit on his throne forever. And like David, as we saw in Hebrews 5, Jesus experienced the severe discipline of God. But unlike David, the discipline that Jesus experienced on the cross was not due to his own sins, but for the sins of his people. David was reproved and chastened by God, not in anger or in wrath, but as a father disciplines his beloved child for his own good. But unlike David, Jesus would be chastened by God in wrath. We see that in Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. Isaiah 53, verse 4, Surely, speaking of the Messiah, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But Yahweh has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Because Jesus took the wrath of God against sin upon himself, we can pray the way that David prayed. If we have received Jesus as our Savior and Lord by faith, we can take Psalm 6 as a prayer upon our own lips when we are being disciplined by God. We can come to God when we're suffering trial and say, Lord, your wrath was exhausted upon your son. So now rebuke me as your child, not as your enemy. Your just penalty due to me was satisfied by the death of your son. So now be gracious to me and heal me. Your son, Jesus, defeated death by rising up out of the grave. So now lavish your loving kindness upon me and restore me to sing your praises now and forevermore. The only reason that David could pray this prayer is because of what Jesus would do for him. And the only reason that you and I can pray this prayer is because of what Jesus has done for us. Jesus won the victory over all his enemies. And the day will come when he says, depart from me, all you who do iniquity. He will overthrow all of them. And because of that, 
Though God at times will use our enemies or other adverse circumstances to discipline us, we know that ultimately they will all be forced to depart from us as well because we're in Christ. So in the meantime, let's keep praying to our God of all grace, our Father, so that we don't lose heart. He hears us and he will answer us. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would cause these truths to sink down deep into our hearts, that it would cause us to love you more, that you are a faithful father to us, not an enemy anymore. If we have come to you through faith in your son, Jesus Christ, you have adopted us as children into your family, and we can experience your love, your loving discipline, and know that it's not in wrath but in love to make us more like your son. Help us to love you for your chastening hand. Help us not to get angry at you or in pride think that we don't deserve what we're receiving. Lord, help us to humble ourselves before you under your chastening hand and thank you that you are a father who loves us enough to prune us and to make us more like your son. Lord, help us to love you more. For your faithfulness, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.